welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 20th episode, it's part two of a two-part series where I talk to Ted Brandt, one half of the artistic duo Brandt and Stein, who are responsible for Princeless, Raven the Pirate Princess, and the upcoming Steve Rogers Captain America number 10, and Champions Monsters Unleashed, about tabletop role-playing games. Along the way, we'll discuss how scrumping is less fun when you're surrounded by angry livestock instead of apples, how with the right combination of spells a sorcerer can become Spider-Man, and a criminally underrated artist that everyone already knows about. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. Why don't you tell us who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Well, I can't give you any evidence to the second part of that, but I can explain who I am. I'm a professional comics artist, primarily doing inking, and I work in tandem with my partner, Ro Stein. We've been working together for two and a half years now, roughly, give or take. Yeah, we do all of the line art together, so... We, we work out work out layouts together, then she'll pencil and I'll ink. The majority of our work so far has been for small American company Action Lab with the Princeless book and its spin-off Raven the Pirate Princess. But we've recently uh, started doing a bit of work for Marvel. So I think in one week's time, we've got Steve Rogers' Captain America issue 10, which we contributed half the art for. And at the end of February, we've got the champions.mu tie-in to the Monsters Unleashed event, which we provided all of the line art for. That's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's it was a great opportunity because the, the reason we were lucky enough to get it was because the creator, of, uh, the writer and creator of Princess, uh, Jeremy Whitley, has been working a lot more for Marvel recently. And so he had the, uh, the Champions issue for the Monsters Unleashed event. They said to him that they didn't have anyone in mind for the art. Could he think of anybody? And since we'd worked together before and get on well, then, yeah, we were lucky enough to uh, be offered the shot. Jeremy also wrote one of my favorite little short stories in the Secret Love compilation. He wrote the Danny and Misty Forever story, which I hold dearly in my heart because it contained a reference to the Five Deadly Venoms, which was one of my favorite kung fu movies growing up. (laughs) Yeah, it was a really nice little short, that. Mm. Giri Hero's art was just really lovely. Absolutely. So, Ted... Where did you grow up? In the, the southwest of England. I was born in a relatively smallish city called Bristol and left there with the family when I was about eight to uh, grow up in the countryside. So although I was born in the city, I'm a country boy at heart. Okay. So I, I presume lots of orchards and scrumping and, you know, th- theft of fruit and things of that nature? No, that's a little bit further south uh, in Somerset. Ah, wrong, wrong section. For all of the, uh, all of the orchards and things. We mostly have livestock. Oh, so okay. instead of instead of scrumping scrumping for apples, it's more trying to dodge annoyed cows. I thought you were going to say the theft of sheep. 
but <laughs> I think it's quite the same. I think that's that's just theft. That's not scrumping. No, and also it's quite inconvenient because sheep are rather heavier. Mm. Tend to have minds of their own. Yeah, but I mean that, that's not too much problem. It's it's more just a weight issue if it. <laughs> it's a logistical nightmare. Yeah, because I mean, they're, they're very lazy creatures. You can do whatever, but it, it's just you, you need a well coordinated team to lift one. <laughs> yeah, one for each foot. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so so what sort of setting are we looking at then? Well, I'm thinking of a small town in, in sort of a rural area. And what, what sort of kid were you? Well, uh, I'm autistic, so slightly awkward. My social skills were unusual. Not mm. terrible, but just not quite developing like normal people. I was always very outgoing and not necessarily loud, but definitely very forthright and confident of my opinions, which definitely is something that hasn't changed at all as I've grown up. So you're you're right on the setting. It's, it's a tiny town called Wooten Under Edge. It's got a population of roughly 5,000 people. To give you an idea of what sort of town it is, it's for those 5,000 people, it's got, I believe, three churches and five pubs. So priorities are... <laughs> In the right place. I suppose it's something about the small town that makes people pray harder, but also drink harder. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's that, and yeah, the only other thing going are hairdressers. So, it's it's not a lot to do here. Is the is the point? So hairdressers as well. So stylish, devout, and drunk. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it makes sense because um, it's a small town, and as a result, it's a small town right next to quite a good school, but also not very, not very near anything else. So the majority of people who live here are either retirees or young families. Okay. And what? And what's the edge? So where? So if it's under edge, is there like a cliff face or? Uh, not a cliff face, but we're nestled in a tiny little sub valley in the in the middle of the Cotswolds. The Cotswolds is a long-running like a hill formation that stretches up a large portion of the southwest. We're in one of the kind of nooks that, it, that the hill range has created. Sadly, my only knowledge of the Cotswolds is from a joke on Black Books where he talked about cycling through the Cotswolds on a taxi. And <laughs> Yes, that's, that's them. That's the extent of my knowledge. Put it like this. The best way to describe the sort of place I'm in is while the details are, are dissimilar, if you've seen Hot Fuzz, the town is tonally quite like that. With that, you've painted a picture. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we have definitely fewer accidents than they do. Say, fewer secret cults and murders, at least that we're aware of. Yeah, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to speculate on the secret cults because we definitely have a chapter of the Masons here and amongst others. So <laughs> I'm not, not willing to make that assertion. But uh, we, we definitely have a, a, a lower accident ratio. Who could? Okay, so what sort of things caught your attention when you were younger? What sort of things really were you into? From about the time I was five, then that was when the um, X-Men, the animated series, oh, yes. debuted. And so that was just revelatory, really. I mean, it doesn't hold up well, bless it. <laughs> so try, I tried going back to it a few years ago, and it was a terribly incoherent mess. But five-year-old me didn't really understand it, but knew that he absolutely loved it. And so from there, I sort of didn't didn't go into a comic shop for a long time, but kind of got, you know, watched a lot of uh, superhero cartoons. So we had, I don't know, if, uh, in either Canada or Australia, wherever you grew up, if you had Marvel Action Hour. Oh, yes. At any point. Yes, certainly. So I enjoyed that greatly. But um, it wasn't until I was about 14, 15 that my current interests really 
solidified because that was simultaneously when me and a group of my friends joined our school's war games club for doing tabletop RPGs and Warhammer and things like that. Okay. And the same year was when I actually first went to a comic shop and started buying things that were current. Okay. And did you? And I suppose it's a, a large enough town that it would have a comic shop and. Oh, no, God, no, God, no. no. 5,000 people? Not not at all. Um, (laughs) I suppose I wouldn't really have the customer base to sustain that. No, bear in mind that when I was about 15, we also got an internet cafe that died within a year. Oh, wow. We have a a very small contingent of forward-thinking people who aren't enough to sustain anything actually forward-thinking. A bunch of continually frustrated forward-thinking people. Yeah. The first comic shop I went to was um, in Bristol. It was a tiny little uh, family-owned affair called Kathy's Comics, mm-hmm. which, sadly, like the Bristol location shut after a few years because it was their second location and they couldn't afford to sustain two. So uh, that down that went. By the time it did, I was well and truly into the habit, and that was it, really. And I suppose this would be asking you to think back quite a ways, but do you recall what were the first physical comics as opposed to, you know, seeing the the Superhero Hour stuff or the X-Men cartoon? What was it that really got your attention? Or did you go straight to X-Men or did, did you like branch off somewhere else? In the intervening years between five and 15, I'd gotten sort of periodic... Um, in Britain, they have a kind of Marvel reprinty type thing where they do digest versions where you, you get... They'll do like kind of compilation almost uh, books where you get like Wolverine and Gambit, which would be like you'd get one of the more recent Wolverine issues and an issue of X-Men that had Gambit in it or you get like or Spider-Man and Wolverine where you'll get the an issue of Wolverine and an issue of Spider-Man in the same book okay. so I'd read kind of bits of things but not enough to uh, not enough to get much of a feel for the universe or know what I was doing at all but I can I can still remember my first book that I actually bought the first American comic that I bought vividly because uh, I went into the comic shop for the first time as a fresh-faced 14-year-old, mm-hmm. and on the stands was Wolverine, who I knew I liked. It was issue number 165, and it was really a vivid and quite alarming cover, because it was uh, it was Sean Chen's art, and it was a glowing finger poking out Wolverine's eyeball. And so, of course, being in some ways a fairly standard 14-year-old boy, I was like, ooh, wow, that looks awful. <laughs> I'm gonna read it oh god I, I just looked it up to get to get the image and oh it's gruesome it really is isn't it like that is not what you'd expect on a superhero comic book cover interiors maybe but cover they, they really were pushing that one and the thing is I, I the minute i saw it i think i remembered at least reading about the story if not reading the story that's with Mauvais the cannibal and yes oh that's god correct. that's so weird what a strange issue to just pick up and start yeah, well, because it, it came in sort of slightly through the the arc. They didn't have the back issues in, so I just kind of picked it up and said, well, this is where I will start reading. And so it was, yeah, it was really baffling because that was right around when Weapon X was coming back, but I'd missed a lot of the groundwork for it, so that was odd. There was the silent issue not long after that where uh, Moves had uh, become a Wendigo himself, so he's a Wendigo sorcerer, mm-hmm. and Wolverine teamed up with Alpha Flight but in a dialogueless issue to, to fight him. So it was, it was quite amazing, given that that was the only book I was reading at the, at the start, that I actually stuck with it, really. Yeah, and I think I remember, I think they were those, I think they were called Enough Said issues. And I remember reading one that was like the lead up to the X-Core thing with Banshee setting up his weird 
fascist strike force and there was an exiles issue and a couple of others but i feel like while it was it was a fairly good gimmick and that you, if you get the right artist and you know the right scripting for it i think like all the ones that i can remember weren't terribly important in the scheme of things i guess it was just the kind of the wrong time to be doing a gimmick that kind of heady yeah, I mean, fighting a Wendigo, there's nothing wrong with having a silent issue there. And Sean Chen's work was easily strong enough in storytelling that it wasn't confusing. That As long as you've got a good artist on it, it's not necessarily a problem. Yeah, yeah. I had a similar situation where there was a comic shop that was up the, up the street from uh, where my dad worked. And I would go in and loiter, as you do when you're, you know, 13 or 14. Of course. And read all the Spider-Man comics. And I couldn't afford any of the actual, like, new comics and especially not the ones that were in the slipcases and had the chromium covers, et cetera, et cetera. It was a bad time for comics. Ah, uh, the 90s. Yep. And the the things I could afford, though, were the, the bargain stuff at the front. And I ended up buying a slightly water-damaged copy of, it was Batman Birth of the Demon. Oh, nice. Which, and again, it's, it's looking back, that's a great book. However, I had no idea who Ra's al Ghul was. I had no, like, Batman doesn't even show up in it until like the very last panel, and it was incredibly gruesome. <laughs> like, you know, someone being fed to a Lazarus pit that's been put in the wrong place and coming out with their eyeballs falling out and t- cities being put to the sword and just terrible stuff. And I was like pouring over this thing and feeling like I shouldn't have been, feeling like I had something that I shouldn't have. Yeah, definitely. I can, I can see how you'd come to that. Which is, the, you know, it's, it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. I can definitely see how you would, uh, how you would feel like that. <laughs> you'd mentioned before uh, that you'd got into tabletop gaming and Warhammer. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Maybe four or five friends and I, we were very lucky because one of our teachers at school, a history teacher, Mr. Fisher, was very into all of that sort of stuff, enough that he volunteered to run the after-school club for it. Oh, that's good. And so that allowed us to get into it really well, because then we had a bit of a bit of guidance and a place where we could do it once a week straight from school and all that. So it was it was brilliant. So uh, in addition to Warhammer, then one of my friends also wrote his own role play game from scratch. Oh my god! Which we all play tested. Wow, that's quite an which endeavor. Which was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, and obviously being a fifteen-year-old's work, he, he, it was. Not particularly refined, but he's always been a very good storyteller, which is the important thing. So the, me- the mechanics were largely cribbed from elsewhere, but the story behind it was really solid and engaging and highly entertaining. So what we did every Thursday after school was either you know Warhammer battles or um, play that, and then from there I branched out into you know more D and D, which is my preferred game in general. We also tried some. Uh, of the white wolf games things like werewolf the apocalypse and vampire the masquerade oh yes all of those ones it what's called the world of darkness game set we flirted with some other games periodically but never quite got them all the way there to be satisfying notable ones being uh, call of cthulhu which we just never quite found the time for and a terrifying one that i don't know if you've heard of called continuum see I, i've heard of it but i don't think i know anything about it so please explain we well we never managed to fully figure out how it would be actually playable so i don't know whether that's the game being too complex or us not being smart enough for it but basically continuums a time travel based game and so time combat so you've seen back to the future right so you know when marty goes back and starts screwing up his parents relationship and you, you see the photo with them fading out 
Mm-hmm. Time combat in Continuum is basically setting up moments like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can see how that would be complicated. Yeah, so time combat isn't so much like jujitsu through the ages, but instead you have to uh, go back and stop your enemy from doing something crucial, and then that causes them to start fading, and if they can't correct it, eventually they will be destroyed by it. So, <laughs> but, but then, of course, while they're fading, they've still got enough time to do the same to you. Or, you know, so it gets really, really very confusing very quickly. So we liked that. That's, that sounds amazing, but you're right, also incredibly complicated. Yeah. There's a, a book series, there's a book, rather, not a series, that is called The, uh, the First 15 Lives of Henry August. And it's basically they live a single time loop from the moment they're born until when they die. And but they retain the memories each time they go through. Ooh. And so you'll have someone who basically lives from 1901 to 1975, but each time remembers what happens. And the only way to fight other people like that whose loops intersect yours is to find other people who can go back and change something. And it, yeah, it's like the more you start to think of it, your mind starts to unravel and fall to bits. Yeah, it's it's one of those ideas that's really fun to read about and think about, but actually working out the mechanics of playing it, I think, would be possibly a bit beyond me. <laughs> I imagine it would involve a, a whiteboard and lots of arrows. Yeah, I, I would not have envied the uh, the Games Master on that one. I really wouldn't. <laughs> Coming back to D&D, what edition were you playing? Were you in, like, was it 3.5? Was it 4th edition? No, standard 3rd. Okay, wow. Yeah, that's, that's the one we got into, and I've never actually played another version since, though I'm trying to slowly accumulate the 5th uh, edition ones, because they're fantastic, actually. Okay. The 5th edition seems to be, it seems to have all of the best bits of 3, 3.5, and 4. Okay. It's very much a, very much a greatest hits rule, like rule selection, so that's going to be my new thing. But uh, yeah, 3rd was always, just because that was what was available when we got into D&D, and then we didn't really bother buying 3.5 or 4 on the, on the basis of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Especially like once you learn those rules, it's like you then start to manipulate those systems to, to get what you need. Exactly. Now, did you have a particular type of character that you like to play? The very first I ever played was a barbarian in the the, uh, the game that my friend created. I was a um, I was a barbarian of great strength and utterly terrible intelligence. <laughs> my intelligence was not much higher than the doors I tried to kick in. <laughs> My character was great because the system that we were working with had a function for prayer to the gods and they might grant you your wishes. And I got a roll, I believe it was three 18s in a row on rolling three six-sided dice, which meant that not only did the gods hear me and favor me, but it actually, you know, went completely, it went too well almost. (laughs) So my barbarian had been praying for extra strength. And so I got from, we were in a system where all of your stats were out of 12. But there, from then on, my, my strength was out of 18. So I was divinely <laughs> divinely favoured with brute strength. While that was great fun, I could never come up with a barbarian quite as fun as him. So that was where my barbarianing died. And mostly from there on, I was usually sorcerers, if anything. I think one of my most memorable ones was I managed to get a sorcerer with all of the spells necessary to become a uh, shoddy Middle Ages knockoff of Spider-Man, which was <laughs> oh, wow. excellent, excellent fun. So, you know, had spider climb and enhanced leap and all of that sort of stuff, spells that I could cast. You get your dexterity up to a certain level and you can do all kinds of crazy stuff. 
Exactly. <laughs> so that that was fun. Actually, no, I tell a lie. The most memorable character I ever did in D and D was um, we we found the rules for um, some of the very much lesser used races, and I convinced the DM to let me play. So I was a leprechaun, which <laughs> was astonishingly fun. God, I'm thinking, how how would you play a leprechaun? Like, what's your what's your plan? You're small and mischievous, basically. I was gonna say you'd be you'd be chaotic. So oh, very much so. I was chaotic neutral, so not <laughs> yeah. You know, I I was just in it to create chaos, regardless. Yeah. The leprechauns have some incredibly don't know if they still do, but then they had some incredibly powerful spells like polymorph other. So as long as you're touching a thing, it can just turn into anything that you can figure out. And I deliberately gave my leprechaun skills in chemistry so that then I was doing things like transmuting enemies' bowstrings into water and <laughs> That's really clever. Their armor plates into acid. Which <laughs> The downside was it also meant that I, you know, heavily offended the local lord who we were working for because when we were trying to meet him to get payment for our work, it was at a grand function he was doing. And so when before he'd come out to talk to everybody, I, being an illusion-creating leprechaun of chaotic alignment, was completely compelled to create an illusion of the lord walking out in his underwear just saying hello to everybody. Just, just couldn't help yourself. No, exactly. So, so it, yeah, I think that was probably the most memorable character I've ever played. I can just imagine the rest of your party just being like, "Damn it, Bob, you always do this." We just wanted to get paid. <laughs> yeah, I caused about as much trouble as I got them out of. So it was, it was a very mixed bag. <laughs> Swings and roundabouts. Definitely. Whenever I talk to people about role playing, everyone seems interested. But it's at the moment because there is such, for lack of a better word, there's so much lore to it. It's intimidating. So if you were to give advice to someone who would be, you know, thinking, hey, I'd like to give it a try. I'd like to go and try D&D. What would you say? Like, what would be your advice starting out for someone? When Ro and I met at university, then not long after that, I did convince a bunch of friends, none of whom had ever played tabletop RPGs before, to give D&D a try. And actually, it was really quite accessible for them as long as there was one person who knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But now with the fifth edition... What I'd say is, if you're if you're interested in Dungeons and Dragons and you don't have any experience whatsoever, the fifth edition, what's called the starter kit, is cheaper than any of the main rule books and gives you everything you need to play or run a small limited adventure to get a taste for it. It's just a nice, nice simple kit that's got a you know solid explanation of all your basic rules and the mechanics of the world that you can create. So I I definitely say that as far as Dungeons & Dragons go, there's never been an easier time for someone with no experience to actually learn. That's fantastic, because I was actually talking with a a previous guest, Jedda Ray, about this idea of when tabletop RPGs are opened up to the internet, you see this massive, like, shift in development and popularity and evolution of the games themselves, because it kind of allows people to talk and experience and even directly interact with the game's creators. You know, at something like PAX, where they have an enormous tabletop gaming session. Yeah. And that kind of drives ingenuity and innovation in the setups as well. But also, again, yeah, like you said, you have this this starter kit that you can just pick up and play without having to buy, you know, seven $40, three kilo books. Yeah. What you need, really, for Dungeons & Dragons to run any sort of campaign you want is Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. Mm-hmm. Like You can get away with just the Player's Handbook, realistically, but if you want to do 
you know, a, a really intense deal, then you'll need all three. And in British money, then that's about £90, roughly, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit under. But yeah, so it's, it's a substantial investment for something you don't know what you're getting into. So things like the starter kit, which I think is only 20 or 25 mm-hmm. on it, like, and then that gives you everything you need to set up something basic and see if you like it. That's much more the sort of level that of expenditure that you'd need to attract someone who's interested but not certain that they're willing to spend a large amount of their disposable income on it. Yeah. Of course, the other method is always just find a friend who already has them and say, hey, you should you should host an evening. Well, absolutely. But the reason why I really approve of the, the starter kit is just because it means that then you don't need to know anyone who's into it mm-hmm. already to, uh, to get in, which is, I think, a really sensible thing because word of mouth is great for... Getting, you know, getting people into gaming, but not everybody will know people who already are, even if even if they do know people who would like to be. Yeah, I now feel compelled to share my my fr- the very first time I did D and D, and it was because I have a bunch of friends who had a regular campaign going, and they decided that they were going to hey, look, you know, we should get like we've got four or five other friends who don't do this. Wouldn't it be great if we all played? And so I was loaned, like you said, a player's handbook and a monster manual. And being the, well, the kind of obsessive that I am, I read them cover to cover and then sat down and started to try and work out, all right, what do I, what do I want? How do I want to play this? And I ended up coming up with a character who was A, a gnome, B, a ranger. So that way I would, because the reason I'd worked it out was I'm like, okay, I like all the stealthy stuff, I, but I still want to fight. And if I'm a gnome, I, can, I have a bonus to these gnome hooked hammers, which are like a cultural weapon. And they're double-ended, which means they, they, they hit twice. And because I'm a ranger, I can have one in each hand. So I get four hits every turn. And started to like work out all these things. And they said, oh, you can pick a mount. And I may have picked a displacer beast, which is a, a cat that's invisible that it turns sideways. <laughs> and But it's also kind of a lizard and it's purple and it has spikes on its back. And I'm like, yeah, that's the one I want. I want one of those and I'm going to name it Fluffy. And my evening went great until we had our first combat and I was killed by a kobold. Because I hadn't invested anything in defense or armor or anything. <laughs> And so for the rest of the night, I just polished off the wine I drank and became apparently quite obnoxious. Last campaign I ran when I was at university, I was dungeon mastering and the team were special. They were special. (laughs) And what was interesting about them was they were completely inverse on everything. So like you, they were theoretically quite good at combat, but there were five of them. They nearly died facing six kobolds (laughs) in the first 10 minutes. But then somehow, by the end of the first dungeon, they nearly died in every situation possible, including two giant rats, which, for anyone who doesn't know D&D, are pretty much the most pathetic monsters you can face. <laughs> One of them nearly died facing that. And yet there was the, the villain was a third level evil dwarven cleric, and they killed him in about 10 minutes. <laughs> I suppose when all you have is a hammer, every cleric looks like a nail. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, but then, much like you with your lack of forward planning for defense, they... uh... They didn't really think things through very well. Like So when they went into the dungeon, for example, all of them had one torch and they all lit them. And I didn't bother telling them because I thought, no, it's their own fault. <laughs> and then after one hour of game, t- like one hour of internal game time, then the torches all went out and I said, oh, look, the time's passed. You can no longer see. And <laughs> they all realized their mistakes. And look, now you've learned something. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun, but... 
they were a truly terrible party. <laughs> I mean, because we, we had to, we had to, it, was, it was in a dungeon, so you know, underground, lots of stone. We we had a dwarf in the party. Dwarves in third edition D and D automatically have stone cunning. Meaning, if they walk by a secret door in a in a mine, they can roll to see if they notice it, the same as if they were looking for it, just on you know, just out of instinct. Yeah. Now, knowing this, when I was designing the dungeon, I put in loads of intricate things, some good, some bad, and our resident dwarf found literally none of them, <laughs> and I was quite offended by that, honestly. Because I'd got, really gone out of my way to map out all these things, some that looked like secret passages but weren't, some that opened up to be stashes of gold or gems or, depending on the chance, possibly even a cursed cloak. It was a, a cloak of beetles, so you, you put it on and you're just coated in insects until you get the curse removed. <laughs> okay. No one found that either. <laughs> you're like, well, cool story, I guess. Yeah, exactly. One of them found, did find one of the cursed items, which was a lodestone, which is just a tiny little perfectly smooth, perfectly round pebble. They picked it up, and then when they tried to put it down, it mysteriously returned to their pocket, and it basically, it just, despite being this tiny little thing, just made them permanently encumbered so they could only move at half speed. <laughs> I, I love that stuff, because when I was quite young, I was maybe a 12 or 13, one of my aunts, my, one of my, my, my mother's sister and her boyfriend, uh, had all the miniatures and played D&D, and I would sit, and they, they had the trap guides, and I would sit and look at these, like, pencil sketches of all the terrible things that could befall a party. Yes. Even things like, you'd have an obvious kind of moat of, of acid or something, and you've provided a rope that is clear to swing to the other side. And they've specifically weighted the rope that one tug, it will seem secure, but when full weight is applied, it will slide down about a meter <laughs> and you'll smack directly into the wall below the door on the other side. And it was something about the illustrations. I remember just looking at and just laughing and being like, oh, who would be so mean as to do that? I remember showing my aunt's boyfriend and he went, I can think of two players that would fall for that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of things in that dungeon, that first dungeon. Like, you know, I made what looked like a secret passage to somewhere, but actually was just, it was a secret passage to the same bit of corridor that it left in a different <laughs> spot, but um, had multiple death traps along it. So as soon as you walked halfway in, you'd be hit by arrows and flamethrowers and all sorts. But again, sadly, our dwarf was far too incompetent to even find the damn thing. <laughs> Ah, well, there'll always be one. Yeah, exactly. I know, it's it's something I, w I really want to get back into this year, mm -hmm. playing D&D, because uh, I really miss it. And I think, because I, I did a little bit, um, there's a, a role-playing podcast called Exiled. It's the same guys who run Multiversal Q, the podcast, do it on the regular. And I got to sub in on their Christmas episode. And doing it reminded me how much fun kind of improvising in roleplay is, because I've, I've dabbled in... in improv and sort of theater sports and things like that and i think if i were to introduce some of my theater sports friends to it i think it would be this great exercise for them where you're embodying a character but what you do within this, the setting is entirely up to you so i think it'd be a sort of a gateway drug for them that way oh yeah definitely it's, it's there's a lot of potential for that and 
the game is always at its best when people really try to inhabit the character rather than just playing the stats but you know they try and really make decisions as the, as their character that's, that's when the game shines and especially when the situ- when the solution is not always well i'm going to try and stab that person yeah absolutely i'm going to talk down the the evil wizard i am going to you know bluff them in some way that will come with an unexpected result exactly and say someone uh, decides to try and intimidate someone that's three feet taller than them and <laughs> starts a massive fight i know i, I really really enjoy all of that aspect to it so uh, it's something i do want to get back into it's just a case of finding the time as with everything when you're an adult with a job <laughs> absolutely i was gonna say as someone who does this podcast around a job yes i completely understand the one downside of working comics is it doesn't leave a lot of time for hobbies. <laughs> I'd imagine not, no. Actually, I, I did want to ask, and this is something that I've had asked of me in other situations, but working in comics as you do, does it enhance or inhibit your enjoyment of the medium? Like, what do you think? Are you are you thinking in, in nuts and bolts too much, or or is it kind of like you needed to step out of it, or what, what do you think? I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but... No, it's fine. Honestly, I don't think it's affected it, because I, I was already quite a critical reader anyway, from the, you know, the point of view of trying to dissect why things are done in a certain way. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, sure that, not sure that working comics has changed anything of my reading of them. There are some artists that I've come to appreciate more as a result of doing work. So I can I can see the value of their storytelling choices more in a way I may not have done before. But in terms of just sitting down and reading any given comic, I don't think that my experience now is any different to uh, before I um, before I started making them professionally. That's actually heartening. I always have a fear because I'm uh, quite an avid photographer. It's something I really really enjoy. And I, I do get paid for my work when I do, you know, I'll go to, to shows and things like that, or I'll do headshots for my friends. But where I really enjoy it is just being able to do my own thing. And I have been asked in the past, it's like, well, if, if this were your job, would you enjoy it as much? And your answer is actually quite heartening. The idea that, you know, the reason that you enjoy it in the first place is still there. Yeah, none of that's changed. Like, I may spend all day making comics, but I still, it doesn't take away from the enjoyment of reading them at all. The only thing it's done is enhanced my ability, I think, to discern what I think is a well-made or not well-made comic based on the craft involved, because I have a better idea than ever as to how things are done. Like, even then, like, it hasn't, that hasn't done much to change who my favourite artists are overall, mostly. It's, if anything, it's just given me a greater appreciation of the ones who already were. It's kind, of, it's kind of one of those things like when you're a child watching the Olympics and you think, oh, that's just a person, you know, jumping off a diving board or doing a flip across a floor. It's when you're an adult and you do things like, you know, you move house and you're super sore the next day and you can feel every tendon in your fingers. And then you look at someone doing weightlifting at the Olympics and you appreciate it so much more. Yeah, definitely. Who are your favorite artists? Who who gets your attention? I'd be lying if I gave you any other name than Stuart Immonen. I really would. Because he's in a really interesting point where a lot of fans like his work. But if you want to see people who truly, passionately, deeply love his work, you're most likely to find that amongst comics creators. I don't know what it is about his stuff that means that the general public don't treat him like the utter genius he is but he gets big books like you know he um, did he, over the last few years he did uh, he was just finished empress with mark miller he 
before that he was doing um star wars and then all new x-men and he's moving on to amazing spider-man so it's not that he doesn't you know get the big books or anything like that but it's just people who don't make comics for a living i i see them more talking about how good he is in a liking sense whereas almost every comics artist i know of looks at his work and is just you know utterly utterly enthralled by it every time they see it partly because of his range so that that, that might be something to do with it because uh, superhero fans will see a superhero work which is absolutely top of the line but then if you look at something like his creator-owned works that he's produced with Catherine Imminen then if you look at something like um, Never As Bad As You Think the webcomic they ran that's super super cartoony you know really bright and exaggerated and people a lot of people have like very exaggerated proportioning or you can drop down to um, moving pictures which is this kind of beautiful little book all about art theft under the nazis in france and that's all incredibly simplistic but really powerful black and white no spare lines anywhere on it and then it moves up again to um, russian olive to red king which is the most recent book that they've done together and the biggest and that's just it, it's like nothing else on the stand in terms of yeah you know, it's got very simple composition but because he's done all of the art in there it shows that he's also an excellent colorist it's got you know really powerful compositions built around shape and color with really sophisticated but sensitive and subtle art so yeah i'd say i'd, I'd definitely say Stuart Imminent is my all-time favorite and I'm baffled that he isn't everybody's. Yeah, I got my first touch point for Stuart Eamon uh, is always Ultimate Spider-Man. And from that, like, I, I hadn't realized that he had done All New X-Men, which I only read a couple of months ago. And I'm just now looking at moving pictures, and it's really striking. Yeah. Like, it's, it's remi- it reminds me a little bit of, the, of uh, Jack Staff in some of the panel compositions. Where it's like there's so much negative space and darkness being used. Yeah. And it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm definitely going to yeah. have to read more of this. And I actually didn't know that he was doing the Star Wars one, which are like these big kind of bombastic, very crowded and detailed pages. And yeah, they look, they look great. Yeah, he's his flexibility and versatility is phenomenal. If, if you or your listeners haven't read it, I also recommend at least checking out his book with Kurt Busiek, Superman's Secret Identity. Because not only is it my favourite Superman story of all time, which is saying something as, you know, Superman is my go-to superhero, Imminent's work on it is different again from everything that we've just discussed. Oh, wow, yeah. It's almost it's almost trying for a kind of simulated photorealism. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. I'm just like flipping through now. Yeah, and and so it's this incredible thing that part of the reason why I think comics artists love him the most is because we all know how difficult it is to get any one of the styles that he has perfected halfway decent. The fact that he has half a dozen different things that he can do very well is just as a source of incredible envy and awe, certainly for a lot of people I know. Well, this is fantastic. I'm definitely going to have to read this one as well. See, you're, you're making my comicsology pull this a lot longer. Well, I, I would apologize, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Wonderful. So if people wanted to find you on the internet, where would they go? Best place to find me in general is on Twitter. I ramble incessantly at 10 underscore bandits. 10 is all, all in letters rather than any numbers in there. You can find examples of what I've done on my seldom updated website that I share with my partner, Ro, at brandtandstein.com, which is B-R-A-N-D-T-A-N-D-S-T-E-I-N. 
E I N. Okay, great. Right, well, thanks very much, Ted. This has been really interesting. Yes, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of fun to talk about with all this stuff. I've been working on a cocktail called Grounds for Divorce. Whoa, polish in a compass that I hold in my sleeve. Whoa, down comes a non-stick, but then he kicks like a horse. Thanks very much to Ted Brandt for his time. This week's signature cocktail is a simple one. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's one I've served at many parties, and frankly, I couldn't go past it simply because of the name. So I present to you the trapdoor. In a beaker full of ice, add one ounce of vodka, one ounce of spiced rum, half an ounce of fresh lime juice, and two ounces of orange juice. Stir rapidly with a bar spoon until completely combined. Strain into a highball glass and top up with one ounce of seltzer or club soda. If you want to make the drink just a little bit fancier, try subbing in half the orange juice with mango juice or peach juice. Both will change things up just a little bit. Upon consumption, you gain intuitive insight into the workings of traps. In addition, you gain an inside bonus equal to one half your caster level, maximum plus 10, on search checks made to find traps while the drink is in effect. Note that the tasty beverage grants no ability to find your feet. Enjoy! View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, just send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you'd like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and chip in as little as a dollar a month, or really as much as you want. You can pledge a million dollars. Hey, you want to go a million? We'll go a million. You can also get early access to episodes, physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you can't support monetarily, I would also really appreciate it if you went to iTunes and gave the show a five-star review. It helps with discoverability and get some new people listening to the show. Also, if you write a review, I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? I haven't mentioned this lately, but there's a Spotify playlist of all the music used on the show. Like this song. It's Inchworm by Battles. I really like this album. You can find the playlist by going to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word. I update that playlist every week with new music. Next week, I'll be speaking to Allison Stock, assistant editor at Marvel Comics, freelance photographer, and co-host of the hottest new show in podcasting, Xeno Warrior Business, about The Matrix 
and deep, deep Canadian content. Join me, won't you? Apart from that, how have you spent your, your weekend time? Not a lot else, really. Um, we try to have Saturdays off, but it doesn't often work out. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a sanity measure, but especially with the work we've been doing recently, because a lot of it's been on quite tight deadlines, we haven't been having a, as many Saturdays off as we, uh, mm-hmm. as we would like. Yeah, needs must when the deadlines are coming. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> The glamorous life of a freelancer. Yeah, I mean, very glamorous. If you consider glamour to be not leaving the house and, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of glaring angrily at sunlight. I do know some very glamorous people who live just like that, in fact. <laughs> <laughs>